Our Old Testament lesson is found in the book of Joshua. We'll begin reading today in chapter 13, and then we will close in chapter 14, verses 6 through 15. Listen carefully to God's word. Joshua 13, verses 1 through 7. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shehor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron, which is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim. In the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Mira, that belongs to the Sidonians, and Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebalites, and all Lebanon, toward the sunrise, from Baal-Gad, below Mount Hermon, to Lebo-Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country, from Lebanon, to Meshripoth Maim, even all the Sidonians. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel." Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And then in chapter 14, verse 6, Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. Now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him and he gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunneh for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite to this day because he wholly followed the Lord the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron, formerly Kiriath Arba, Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you give us understanding and encouragement from this man named Caleb. We ask God that we would grow in his likeness. Pray that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In 2005, my father-in-law gave myself and my brothers-in-law a unique opportunity. It was to go to East Africa in order to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Certainly some of you have heard me speak of that experience. It was one of those once-in-a-lifetime 
chances that I had. It was not particularly convenient for the Colson family. We had one son who was 18 months old, one who had just been born, but my wife, knowing this had been a dream of mine since I was 16 years old, allowed me to go. And so we traveled to Tanzania and we uh, began our climb up the mountain and we went a circuitous long route that actually enabled greater success because our team was not the height of physical shape. We had people of all shapes and sizes climbing the mountain. Mount Kilimanjaro is actually known as the fat man's mountain because anyone can ascend it as long as you give yourself the opportunity to acclimate. And so we were on the long acclimation trail. We came up the Shira and Lamoshu routes from the southwest. We reached 15,000 feet, then came back down and worked around the base of the mountain. And then on day six, we found ourselves at 15,000 feet once again, and our guides instructed us that we were to go to sleep. It was about 9.30 at night, and they said, we're gonna wake you up at midnight, and then you will begin to make your way to the summit. We had another 4,000 feet to climb. The psychological pressure over those six days of not knowing what to expect on that final night was intense. You'd heard horror stories of what happened to people, of their water freezing, and of people get, becoming disoriented and having altitude sickness. And so it was all building up to that moment. And so from midnight to six in the morning, we went up to the peak of Mount Kilimanjaro. We arrived around seven o'clock that morning on time, on schedule. It was rather clouded in, so kind of anticlimactic, but we had made it. One person had lost their eyesight, one person was falling apart physically, we all had indigestion from the altitude, and we were ready to be done. It was time to go home. But what we had not expected was that the journey down the mountain would be equally as arduous as the journey up the mountain. In fact, as the guides told us to turn around, they said, now you're gonna walk back to the camp and then you're gonna walk another additional 10 miles today, downhill. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but going upstairs is oftentimes easier than coming downstairs. It's the same on a mountain, that going down is extremely hard on the body, and actually more people are hurt descending Mount Kilimanjaro than ascending it. But psychologically, none of us were ready for this. We had put all of our effort, months of training, into thinking about climbing the mountain and reaching the peak. And no one had given any thought, not even a moment spare thought, to what it would take to descend it. And so after two hours of sleep, we found ourselves up for nearly over 24 hours going down the mountain. Exhausted, tired, stumbling, falling, trying not to hurt ourselves, finding this to be actually the most difficult day that we had faced on the entire trek. We had completely underestimated the back half. In the book of Joshua, you have something very similar. You have a book that's divided into two halves. Chapters one through 12 narrate for us the incursion or conquest of Israel of the land of Canaan, the promised land. And this is something like five years in which Israel lands in the land of promise and conquers the major cities and deals with their major enemies. And then in chapters 13 through 21, we find that there's a second half that takes place. That the land was possessed, but not fully possessed. And so the tribes of Israel begin to inherit all the various specific locations. 
And the question becomes, what does Israel, what does the church, the people of God need as they enter into this back half of the mission? Because the first five years had been enormously successful. They had seen tremendous gains. And rather than shrinking away in fear as Israel had done 40 years previously, they were stout and strong and trusted God for the most part. And they'd seen tremendous success. And now they are in the final cleanup operation in which they're laying claim to the inheritance that God had given them in his grace. And what was that going to require of them? So at the very beginning of this back half, we have the story of an 85-year-old man who is an unlikely hero. His name is Caleb, and his story charts out for us what is required for the church in this back half. After we've experienced tremendous success, after God has shown us favor, what does it look like for us to continue in the mission of God? And there's one simple thing about Caleb's life that commends itself to us, and that is his faith. That it was by faith that Israel inherited the land and took it as a possession. It was by faith that they were going to secure it. It was by faith that they were going to hold it in the future. And that's true for us that every bit of our mission and our life today is lived by faith. Faith is not a door that we once pass through and then look back on. Faith is something that we continue to live into and strive for. It's living and it's active. And there's three things in particular that we need to learn from Caleb as we look at this story and his example of faith. The first is this. We see that a living faith perseveres. You can imagine Caleb was a man of 40 years old when Moses commissioned him, along with representatives from the other tribes, to go spy out the land. The spies came back, you find this in Numbers 13 and 14, with a negative report. They said the people are great. Caleb and Joshua actually come back with a positive report, disagreeing with the other spies, and they say, no, it's ripe for the taking. God has given it to us and we should go take it by faith. And yet the other spies who'd seen the land and whose hearts melted with fear won the day. And we've seen that this wasn't just a strategic military blunder that took place in Israel at that point. It was actually a collapse of faith that God had made a promise and the people actually thought that God wasn't going to make good on the promise. And so that failure took place, that failure of faith, when Caleb was 40 years old. And then, of course, there is the wandering in the wilderness that takes place, and Caleb is one of the very few from that generation to survive. Forty years go by. And then there are five years of the initial conquest. And so in chapter 14, when Caleb comes to Joshua, he says, I am now 85 years old. 45 years after that tremendous debacle in the congregation's life, where they completely collapsed and fell apart. Caleb recounts it. He says, but my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. He followed the Lord his God then, 45 years previously, and then today he comes to Joshua and he requests the inheritance that God had promised him through Moses. 
Now, for some of you, it's not difficult to imagine 45 years. Having not reached that stature yet, it's hard to imagine holding on to that promise for that long. For some of you, it's nearly impossible. That feels like that, those ages would never come, that, that would never be realized. But note just Caleb's perseverance in that. A crushing disappointment. Seeing the church absolutely collapse and fall apart. And yet he didn't grow cynical. He didn't become accusatory. But rather for those 45 years, Caleb patiently waits. And he perseveres in his faith. He's looking to the promise. He knows that God has given the people an inheritance. And friends, it's the same for us today. Because in the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has an inheritance for the church. And it's not this patch of real estate in the ancient Near East. It's actually the nations of the earth. And God promises that all the nations belong to him. And therefore, because we are in Christ, they belong to us. That an inheritance has been set out for us as well. And yet when we look at that, we see all the obstacles, we see the fears, we see all the things that can hinder us from believing. And the church has to persevere in its faith through its gains and through its losses, through its successes and through its disappointments, that we're to persevere believing that our God will make good on what he has said. Now, several years ago, when I was first having discussions with this church in Jacksonville, Florida, that I knew very little about, they had open discussions with me from the search committee about being the, the pastor at the church. And so I casually sent off a few emails to a few vague contacts I had in Jacksonville, Florida. They were pretty broad, general questions. What is the church like? What do you know about it? What's its reputation in the community? I got back one particular response from someone who had attended here for a little bit of time and then, then departed and moved on. And he said, well, I understand there are some tensions in the congregation. And it's a place that's primarily filled with old people. And there's not much life there. And I remember eating, reading that, uh, that email and thinking, well, that's interesting perspective. And I just filed it away because I wanted to see how it matched with what I began to learn. And then we came down for some visits and different things and, uh, and then ended up taking the job. And then when I moved to Jacksonville, some people said, oh, you're the pastor of the old person church. And I was beginning to see this theme. I'm not trying to insult anyone here, okay? And, uh, and they were saying, yes, well, you're over there with the old people. And so I was beginning to catch this theme that was going on about how people were characterizing the life of Christ's church. They were saying, yeah, well, they're past their time. Their time has been spent, was the message that I was receiving. Listen, I knew that before we came. One of the things, though, that was remarkable for us when we began more intensely in considering and interviewing was meeting some of those old people and talking about Christ's church and the gains and the successes and the failures and the losses over 35 years of history. Because friends, you're gonna have them as a church. 35 years of history, some of it colorful, some of it awesome, some of it disappointing. But the one thing that was clear in talking with people about Christ's church, 
Many of those old people were like Caleb, and they had faith. They trusted that in the current disappointment and tension that they had experienced, that God was going to do something again, that God had made promises to the church and God had made promises and giving them an inheritance and he located them in the city of Jacksonville and he had a mission and a purpose still for them. And guys, I have to say for Melissa and I, in our discussions, when we talked about this job, more than having young people in nurseries that are full, what was attractive about it? was that you had people like Caleb, people who believed. Because what's more important than having younger generations is having faith in a congregation, having people really invested in trusting God, that God has an inheritance through Jesus Christ and that God doesn't give up on his word. He doesn't forsake it. And that God had plans and people were willing to trust that. That's what a real faith is. It can't be confused with just energy and excitement. That it is looking to God's word and investing and putting our hopes and all of our dreams inside of that word. That God will make good on things. It's interesting to note that the name Caleb um, has an intriguing translation for us. And I know some people here in the congregation bear the name Caleb. It's a wonderful name to bear. But in the ancient Near East, it literally means dog. And so this man named Caleb carried the name of dog. In the ancient Near East, that was not necessarily a compliment, but it could be used as a compliment. Actually, we have copies of treaties between great kings and their servants, and the name dog was used for the servant. And what it meant was not one who was looked down on, but someone who was the dog of the great king, that is the loyal servant the subject who was faithful. And doesn't that capture who Caleb is? Most likely given that name when he came into Israel, he is the dog of Yahweh. He's the dog of the great God. He's loyal to him. He perseveres in his faith. He believes. And that's what we can learn from Caleb. And it's what many of our younger generations here at Christ Church can learn from many of our older generations. And it's worth talking to them about those experiences, but living faith perseveres. The question comes to us though is why is that? Why does a living faith have that persevering quality? And this is the second point that we learned from Caleb. We see that a living faith trusts God to make good on his word. If you follow me in verse 12 of chapter 14, So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. And previously in verse nine, Caleb says, and Moses swore on that day saying, surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And this is what Caleb bases his request on. He bases his request on a promise from God, on the word of God, and he's willing to then build his actions around his faith that God wasn't going to fail at what he had said. 
And this is a simple summary of the Christian life. That God in his covenant has made promises to us, and God in his character will never fail to keep those covenants. That he will never fail in the promises he makes us through Jesus Christ. And this was Caleb's faith. That God was reliable, that God was trustworthy, that God was true. And you see, for Caleb, he didn't look at the Anakim, who were known to be the fierce warriors of the land. And he didn't ask strategically if it made sense that he was going to be victorious. He didn't plot it all out. What he did was he had a promise from God here, and he had a God who was faithful in his character here, and he believed that what he was to do was to move into the gap in between, not knowing how God was going to fulfill it, but that God would surely fulfill it. And that is what the exercise of faith is all about for us. It is moving into the promise of God, trusting that God is going to fill that promise. And yes, we don't see it. That's why faith is not by sight. It's not an irrational leap because we're based in a gracious and merciful God who always fulfills his word. It's a very rational leap, but it's trusting that this God, when we believe in him, he is the kind of God who fulfills every word that he says. And so this is what Caleb was doing in his faith. He's trusting. And you'll notice that that faith is living. It's not a transactional faith. It's not something that he just did once. It's not an emotional faith, something that just gets renewed through ceremonies week by week. It's not a faith that just comprehends doctrine and then is happy to move along intellectually satisfied. No, Caleb's faith is a living, abiding faith, trusting that the God he believes in And this is no intellectual ascent, but the God he believes in, it's so much more than intellectual ascent, is the type of God who will make good on what he has said. And so this is the challenge for us, is to move out into the promise of God, into the inheritance that he's given to the church, to do so with swiftness, to do so with speed, to do so with trust, that we not on the back half, turn to complacency and idleness. That having once exercised faith, we then go to our rest. Now the clear message of the book of Joshua is in that back half, in that second half after those initial successes, that faith was equally necessary. And this is what Caleb teaches us. We need to trust that God will make good on his word. The final thing that we see here, though, from Caleb's example, is that faith does require reinvigoration. Obviously, Israel, as they pushed into the promised land, there were these covenant renewal ceremonies, energizing the people, preparing them for what was ahead, the sacrifices that they would endure, the hard things that they would push into. But it was 40 years in the wilderness, and then Caleb says he's now 85 years old, and he was 40 years when they went into the wilderness. So five years they were there in the land under the conquest. But now as they enter into this second phase of their work, it was easy for the people to simply grow idle, to be complacent, 
to step back from the rigors of belief and trusting God as they secured the land. And we understand that. That can easily happen. We've received tremendous promises from God. And yet over time and with experience and with disappointment, with personal failures, personally and corporately, it's very easy to grow cynical. Not only can we grow cynical, we can just simply say, well, it's true, but you have to hold that cautiously. That's what so often goes on among us. And our faith in this living God, whose promises are always true, needs reinvigoration. And Caleb is an interesting figure who serves that purpose in Israel. You'll notice in chapter 14, on two occasions, you're told that Caleb was the son of Jephunneh. First in verse 6, the Kenizzite. And then you find it at the end of the chapter once again. He is the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. Now, Kenizzite only comes up on a few occasions in the Old Testament. One of them is in Genesis 15 where the land that was promised to Abraham and to his children and his children's children, guess who lived there? The Kenizzites. And we're identified here that Caleb is a son of the Kenizzites. And so the message that we're to receive, what we're to hear, is that Caleb was not native to Israel. He was like Rahab. And somewhere along the line, Caleb had been grafted in Because remember, this thing was never about ethnic exclusivity, that God was grafting in people who would believe in the promise. And so Caleb was an outsider, and he came in. And yet, as that outsider who came in, do you notice what function he serves? He rebukes the people who had grown up with the promises. He corrects them. He is an example to them. And friends, this is one of the things that God uses to humble us and reinvigorate our faith. And I have to confess to you that I'm annoyed by it every time. Several years ago, I found myself in the midst of a really hard, long pull, a season of work that just had rigor and difficulty to it. And I was in need of a break and stepping away, and at that moment, God sent this young man into my life. He was annoying, desperately annoying to me. He was talking about how much his faith meant to him and how excited he was about what Jesus was doing in his life and how God had rescued him from this and rescued him from that and how he was going and telling everybody about it. And I was annoyed by him for no good reason. I was annoyed because I knew I was not experiencing the same things. Here, a preacher of the gospel, one been commissioned to do it, and I was feeling dry and dull, and yes, it was annoying. And when I finally got the courage to ask myself, why am I so annoyed? (laughs) The answer was easy to come by, because my own faith needed reinvigorating. And this is what God does. He sends people into our path, into our way, to encourage us, to enliven us. Because it is a long, hard, persevering pull. 
It is that obedience in that direction that is very long and sometimes the road doesn't seem like it will ever end. And our faith needs to be renewed. It needs to be revitalized. We need to be reminded by other people of the kindness of God and what it means to be grafted in and adopted. And by some of strong faith who hold fast for 45 years, persevering in their convictions. Because we in the church, we easily become entitled, we get distracted, and we can become very apathetic. And that charge strikes very close to home for all of us when we take a close look. And so we need that reinvigoration. Because friends, the health and life of the church is not built around how many young people are in it or how many old people are in it. The health and life of the church is built around a living faith that looks to Jesus, that lays claim on the promises that God swears through Jesus Christ that everything that God swears in Jesus Christ is ours. And a healthy and living and abiding church is the church that moves together and believes and receives that promise with a faith that perseveres, with a faith that's active and living. And yes, that faith needs to be reinvigorated. And the healthy church is the one who receives that annoying rebuke and moves into it, believing and trusting. That's what it looks like on that back half of the mission. Just when you want to cruise, we're reminded by Caleb to believe. And just as he says, just as the Lord says, that's what we want our faith to be in. The word of God, the promise of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this old man who was so strong and active in faith and in believing, and that you fulfilled every word that you spoke to him. Encourage our hearts. We ask that you would strengthen us, that we would be a people of faith, that we would continue to trust, that we'd persevere in that, we'd have a living and active faith that looks to your promise. Reinvigorate us, renew us by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.